the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. Never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. By the standard expressed by Dr. Cornell West, an activist and philosopher, there is limited evidence of love in our society today. It's difficult to pass a day without hearing of hate crimes perpetrated against Black Americans, Asian Americans, refugees from Latin America, and indigenous peoples. Replacing hate with love and injustice with justice is a mission that must begin in the home, according to our guest in today's episode of Challenge 2.0, Social Justice Parenting. Our guest today is Dr. Tracy Baxley, the author of Social Justice Parenting. A professor of education, she has spent three decades teaching the value and practice of diversity and inclusion. It's a result of her academic training, and as I suspect she'll tell us also, it's also the result of her experience raising five children. Uh, Dr. Baxley, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you with us. This has been a, uh, just a marvelous read with so much information, and I know we can't cover all that we'd like to in this program, but let's begin with, if we can, a personal story. You share in your book the story of a school morning when you couldn't find one of your children. Uh, what happened to make that so worrisome? Yes, that was one of the opening stories. It really was the, I would say the premise of how social justice parenting really began. My um, oldest son at the time was maybe like 12 years old and had just been diagnosed with really high anxiety and his ways of thinking weren't always very rational. And he would take something that seems small and ordinary and it would, in his mind, would expand to something pretty um, large and kind of out of control. So he was diagnosed with anxiety and OCD. And so um, it was a morning that he had forgotten to do his homework and which should have been just a normal behavior. He panicked and he, um, I couldn't find him when it was time to leave for school. And I was running through the house trying to find him and I couldn't find him. And, uh, you know, this paralyzing fear kind of went over me. It was post Trayvon Martin, um, all the things, you know, my, my neighborhood is a predominantly white neighborhood. And all those things as a black mother started rushing through my head with my child who I knew wasn't um, thinking rationally um, what could happen to him. And if I had taught him the things I needed to teach him to, to, to stay safe. So all of that really was the beginning of me thinking it's way more than me keeping my own kids safe. It's about how do we as parents create, um, raise children in a way that we can keep each other's children um, safe and um, be accountable for the way we're raising our children so that all children feel a sense of belonging and a, and a sense of, of safety. And we should circle back just for a moment. It turned out that your son was fine, correct? Yes, he was. <laughs> he had, was actually using the tools that he had been learning in therapy really to get himself to a place where he could calm down. So it turned out to be a really great story in the end. And as you said, that uh, led to your writing of this book. 
Uh, you outlined the concept of a social justice home. Could you unpack that for us a little bit? Uh, tell us exactly what that means. And I think you use an acronym, uh, is it called ROCKS, ROCKS Principles? Yes, so social justice homes are really, homes that are really grounded in the lives, the interests, and the experiences of, of the members in, in, in your home. So you really have to get to know your kids for who they are, not necessarily what you want them to be, in order to really create this uh, idea of a pro-justice and empathetic household, mm -hmm. which is this idea of consistently encouraging you know, courageous acts um, and thinking about others uh, with your actions. And it also requires us as adults to really lead that um, and to show our kids how to be more accountable in their actions. And so the rocks is really kind of the, the building blocks of social justice parenting. And it's a way that the actions behind creating social justice homes. So the rocks stand for reflection, open dialogue, um, compassion, kindness, and social engagement. So how do we start to believe those principles for ourselves, right? How do we model those for our kids? And then how do we teach our children to show up in the world mm -hmm. using those same principles? Right now, my kids are between the ages of 12 and 21. So they're, they're a little bit older now, but there've been a lot of examples that as I sit back as a mom, you know, sometimes when we're in the middle of parenting, we don't think anything is working. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think this idea of consistently showing up the same way, right, in ways that you want your kids to, to learn your values and show up in the world is really important. Um, and so there's been a few examples, and I mentioned them in the book that um, I am able to kind of be an observer of in my kids that make me really proud that some of the things that we're teaching in terms of social justice parenting um, and social justice households um, really are coming to fruition. Um, one particular instance, I remember my third child, which is my second son, had found $20 at a park. And we went around asking anybody whose money it was, nobody claimed it, so I'm like, you can keep it. And he was just so elated about having this $20. He must've been seven or eight at the time. And then we left the park with our friends and we went to the grocery store and in the, in the parking lot of the grocery store, there was an immigrant family there holding a sign asking basically for money to help pay their rent mm -hmm. and as excited as he was about finding that $20 he was even more excited about giving that $20 to the family and wow I was just so proud in that moment that his compassion overwhelmed his feelings of uh you know selfishness in, in a way because he wasn't asked to give the money to them but he really felt that that was the right thing to do was very excited about it so it was in those moments that I realized all the things we pour into our children, it comes out one way or another. As a parent myself, when you get that affirmation, especially if you happen to be present, that is so powerful and makes you feel uh, so very good. Uh, Tracy, we often hear parents say that their goal is to raise a good person. Uh, is it enough to raise a good person or what is the difference between what people might conceive of as a good person as opposed to someone like with your children uh, that have been raised uh, in a household that focuses on social justice parenting practices? That, that's a really great question. I love that question um, because there's nothing wrong with raising good children, right? We, we all wanna raise kids and teach our children to be kind to, to others. But I also think that raising good children is almost like a safe way, right? Mm -hmm. And it could really align with some of our own fears as parents, right? I'm raising a good child um, and that's good enough. 
Um, but I think um, we really need to be thinking about how we go a little bit deeper in our parenting. Um, and that is moving from raising good children to really raising children who are pro-justice. And, and the difference between the two is really this teaching kids to be um, activists or to have an action be behind what they're doing. So I think uh, like in a nutshell, raising good children is teaching our kids, kids to do no harm, mm -hmm. but raising pro-justice children is really raising our children to intercede when harm is being done. So these are the kids that would be uh, adults being the allies or the activists or the anti-racist because they've been taught, you know, as a habit that um, their job or they're capable of changing, changing the world around them. Mm -hmm. And so as I'm raising kids in my home, I really want to make sure I'm raising kids who are beyond good children, but really raising kids who are going to be proactive and, and, and change the things that, that are wrong, really, that are not working in our country right now. You made the point in your book that parenting is inherently a form of activism. Uh, what exactly do you mean by that? And what is that? We get a sense of that from what you've discussed so far, but maybe you can explain that a little bit further. Yeah, I really think that what happens and what is taught in the private spaces of our homes, they're gonna show up in the public places in society. So we as parents should be more conscious about what we're pouring in. Um, and that includes what we're saying and doing or what we're not saying and doing, right? Those, those send powerful messages as well. So I think activism can really take place in the quiet spaces of your children's bedrooms, you know, based on teaching them self-love, self-advocacy, reading books that talk about others, um, that um, normalizes being different. Those things are really important that they'll take out into the world and they'll have those same values um, in the way that they navigate around other people. Mm -hmm. When you just mentioned uh, normalizing being different and uh, creating space for that, it reminds me of a story you told, I think the young man's name was Ruben uh, in one of your classrooms. Can you share that as an example for us? Yes, that, that really uh, goes to this idea of um, raising children who create belonging, right? Who create spaces for belonging in the world. Ruben was uh, a student in my very first classroom, my kindergarten classroom. Um, and I was told that the class was difficult because I started in the middle of the school year. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what that really meant because it was my first year of teaching. But it turns out that he was a child that really was considered an alcohol uh, fetal baby. Mm -hmm. And his mom was on and off drugs while she was pregnant with him. And he had a hard time really kind of controlling his emotions and his body. Um, which back in the day we call him a runner. He would just take off running, screaming because I think his body was really in pain. You know, he was going through withdrawals and um, he was a, a child who was behind academically in school. And I really didn't know how to control a lot of the things but I knew how to love on him. And so I just used that thing that I call radical love to just love on him every day. And with that, he began to really open up um, about what his body was feeling and when he felt the need to run. And we would just come up with a system to help him to deal with those things. And um, as I got to know him, I really realized that although he didn't know any of the academic things like his letters, his numbers, recognizing his name, he really knew a lot in his community. He knew how to go to the store, buy things, support his siblings and do all the things at home. 
And so what I began to do is use some of those home skills or the home knowledge that he had and bring it into the classroom to show the class how valuable Ruben really was. Yeah. Um, and that changed his, his way of showing up. He really felt like he then belonged to this group of students in the classroom and then was more open to start to learn um, what we consider um, knowledge in schools. Mm-hmm. And it be, just became a different classroom for him and a different relationship that he was able to build with his classmates. And so I think it's really important as parents to really start to have conversations with our children um, about what it means to um, to belong and how we can um, help other people who may not feel like they belong to really be, be a part of something bigger than who they are. When you were talking about the story with Ruben, uh, the word that came to my mind was that of ally or allyship. And, you know, in the wake of the uh, murders of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and certainly George Floyd, we've heard a lot about uh, becoming allies or allyship. And I think you told a very powerful story on the need for that and why that's something we need to be aware of. I think you were going through, I think what you referred to as a boot camp. Could you explain that experience and then maybe talk a little bit about the importance of becoming allies? Yes, well, the story that I told was uh, my girlfriend and I, and we were the only two black people in this boot camp. So there was an ex-Marine doing this eight week boot camp for us and um, a group of people. And during that eight weeks, you know, you're working out together every day, sometimes twice a day. We be, we really became like a little family. I mean, it was a really close knit group. We do stuff outside, you know, have dinner at each other's house. And it was a really great experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last day of the boot camp, the uh, leader of the boot camp was asking his children to collect all of the equipment. And the daughter jumped up right away, who must have been, you know, maybe maybe nine or 10 at the time. And she started collecting the things. When, and the son, who was a couple years younger, he wasn't so enthusiastic about helping to clean up. And he was kind of dragging his feet and moving slowly to kind of help with this head down and not really in the, in, in, in the mood to help. And the daughter turned around to her brother and said, stop moving like an N, and she said the N word, mm-hmm. um, and help me. And there was a, you know, obviously complete silence that happened during that moment. Um, and my girlfriend and I, who were the only black people in the group, saw everybody kind of turn at us. And um, the point I was making in the, in the book about that is that was a time to have allyship. Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes back to that question about raising good people versus pro-justice human beings. And they were all good people. I'd spend time with them. I knew they were good people. Mm -hmm. But at that time, nobody stood up for us. Um, We didn't feel like there was any allyship in that. Um, And the lack of a pro-justice person in that moment was very striking for us. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, every time I tell that story, I still feel that that feeling that I felt in that time, feeling almost invisible or I'm not good enough. Um, and so I think it really goes back to the to this idea of whether we want to raise people who are good people, mm-hmm. who I'm sure they felt badly about it, right? Or people who are pro-justice, who, you know, at that moment, allyship looks like just standing next to me. Allyship may look like putting your hands on my shoulder or squeezing my hand. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it's something radical. It's just a moment of making people feel like they're not alone. Mm-hmm. 
What are some mistakes when people say they want to become allies? You've given us a couple of good pictures there, but what are some mistakes that people make? Uh, let's say they want to ally themselves uh, in some shape or form, but what are some common errors and ways to avoid those errors? Yeah, I think um, if we get out of our heads a little bit, right, and mm -hmm. move with our hearts, I think we get so afraid of doing the wrong thing that we do nothing at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I also think one of the issues that come up during allyship is that we want to be supportive of, but we don't want to center ourselves. Um, like I've had some clients who uh, wanting to do ally work in the Black community mm -hmm. who enter that space saying uh, they know what it feels like to be marginalized or to be hurt because of something else that happened in their lives. Mm -hmm. you know? So at that moment, you're not centering your experiences and centering yourself but that you are moving in a way that you are supportive and standing with or behind the people who are being marginalized. Um, but so I'd say to listen more and talk less, right? Yeah. To do what you're asked to do and not take it upon yourself to do what you think is, is the right thing to do. But I think more than anything, it's about just showing up um, and mm -hmm. being present uh, and being open to learning. One of the things that I think was especially valuable about your book is you touch on in great detail, the social justice parenting, but there are just plain good parenting lessons there. Uh, and I, a number of times I thought, gee, I wish I'd known this stuff when I was raising my son, who is now uh, in his uh, late thirties, but you bring up some wonderful examples of when you have to talk about, or when you need to talk about hard subjects with your children, uh, what the principles are that you believe they should follow. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I think a lot of people too are trying to situate my book as more of a political book, and it's really mm -hmm. not. If you really look at the rocks of social justice parenting and what they really stand for, it, you know, it's about showing up for others who may need help, right? Mm -hmm. It's about teaching our kids to self-advocate, to see that there's injustices in the world, and supporting people of whatever identity that is, right? It's not just a, a it's not a race-based book. It's about how do I show up for people who have a, uh, an identity, a privilege in an identity that um, I may not have, or in the areas that I have privilege. Like, I mean, I, I'm Black and I'm a woman, right? Those are usual identities that may not hold as much privilege in the world. But mm -hmm. I'm also upper middle class. I'm a Christian, right? I am... Um, cisgendered, I'm, I am uh, heterosexual, those are all areas in which I know I have privilege that I haven't earned. Mm -hmm. And so then I have to think about how do I have conversations about to my children about what it is the whole privilege, right? And what it means to use that as a form of um, support versus as a weapon to, to divide or separate. Mm -hmm. And so, and part of that, those hard conversations have to happen. Um, and as parents, we have to reflect on our own ways of, of being raised, our own ways of thinking in order to be able to maybe change the way that we show up for our children. Mm -hmm. So for example, I have a lot of clients that I work with that are white moms. And when I ask questions like how often or what were the conversations like that you had with your parents about race, right? About mm -hmm. what it is to be too white in society and you know, those questions, those conversations are hardly ever happening, but they, these parents want to be able to have those conversations with their own children. So their children are more equipped to deal with what's going on in the world right now. And so those heart subjects are really 
conversations that really push us as parents, right? Mm -hmm. It makes us reflect on our own ways of thinking, our own ways of understanding. Perhaps there's some learning, some unlearning, some relearning that has to occur. Facing uh, what we call the real world, these are very challenging times. And as you establish a social, a social justice home uh, and are uh, really trying to bring these attitudes into your children's lives and to have them express it, and they face these problems, how do you guide them in terms of how to involve themselves in some of the controversies, uh, some of the opposition that we face on? Uh, it seems so many different ranges right now. Yeah, and I think that's what's getting a lot of parents kind of stuck from moving from raising good people to raising more socially mm -hmm. active kids. Um, and I think the, the best way to start, it's start small, right? Start with the little things or start with an issue that seems less controversial, right? Something that you're passionate about mm -hmm. that makes it easy for you to, to, to kind of get the wheels moving. It could be environmental issues. It could be, you know, issues in education, whatever those are, start with something small, something that you feel like you can take action in more quickly. And then once you become comfortable with those things, then you're going to add to things that maybe make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I always say the work of activism, you're in a constant state of being uncomfortable. Um, mm. And when you become comfortable, right, it means it's time to push yourself a little bit more to get back into that uncomfortable state. Um, but I think also looking at the issues through these three lenses, um, through the lens of self, right, self-advocacy, how do I teach my kids to uh, advocate for themselves and to be activists for themselves mm -hmm. um, in situations, and then looking at it through the lens of family. So how am I modeling this for my children and us doing this in our own household? And then the third lens is through community. Then how do I take what we're learning at home and then find something in our community that we can, can kind of tap into um, as well? And I think, again, starting small, like reading books with our children about, let's say we're talking about racism, reading books about racism, what that looks like at home, what skin color looks like, why skin is different, why people are treated different because of their mm -hmm. skins, starting there. And then moving to maybe writing letters, helping your kids write letters to people in power, or maybe to uh, somebody locally in your community, maybe it's your politician. So then now you're thinking outside of yourself. And then the third step, then let's take that and let's find some anti-racist um, organizations in our community and see how we can get involved in, in that area. What do you teach both your children and others that consult with you uh, when we get engaged in a given cause? Uh, it's very easy to suffer burnout from that. And do you have some steps that you suggest to your children or to others uh, to keep, if you will, the re well replenished? Yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of meditation. Uh, I'm a big proponent of journaling. Mm -hmm. um, and I also think stepping back uh, is, is really mandatory in the work. Um, I think um, in the work that I do too, I'm an empath. Um, so I really do take on my clients, uh, what's going on in the world. I really take it all in and I, I have to find time. Um, and not, it's not always easy, right? I, I have guilt around that, taking time off when there's so mm -hmm. much still going on in the world. Um, but I also know that long-term self-preservation um, keeps you in the game longer. And so yeah. I, I, I try to tell my kids that it's okay to take an hour off. It's okay to take a day off um, because your time off is really with the, the bigger picture, right? The bigger goal in mind. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I think teaching meditation, teaching um, self-affirmations, teaching deep breaths and those kinds of things are really important life skills really that we can teach our children. You know, what do you teach your children or what do you teach others that when they run into somebody who will uh, just not be convinced, who will not see the other side, you know, uh, what attitude do you take? What approach do you take? Yeah, I know with, with my kids and with the, the, the parents that I work with, I really talk to them about being opening to listening first, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you want to tell somebody your, your values, your perspective, you have to be open to listening to theirs. So being open to listening um, and then sharing your perspectives. Um, and when things get, uh, I think, where it's explosive, I think it's also teaching, teaching our kids to uh, create boundaries around that as well. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the active listening is really important. And to paraphrase, this is what I hear you saying, you know, mm-hmm. um, and right. then um, let me tell you what my views on that or my experiences on that. Um, and then hopefully it would engage in a proper dialogue. But if it doesn't, I always say you have, uh, you have permission to use boundaries mm-hmm. um, and, and to be able to excuse yourself from situations that you feel threatened or that you feel mm-hmm. are, are no longer serving you or the person that you're talking to. So I think it's great to teach our kids about kindness and compassion and social activism, but also we have to teach them how to self-preserve um, and have boundaries and, and be able to advocate for themselves in that way as well. Well, in my opinion, uh, you have made such a difference already. Again, your book, Social Justice Parenting, uh, I highly recommend that. As I say, as a new grandfather, I'm already thinking of ways, and I've talked about it with my wife, and ways that we can utilize some of those principles. Tracy, I thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule and being a part of our program. Thank you for having me. It was a a real pleasure. Well, thank you, and thank you to all of you watching. Uh, We hope that you'll tune in again next week to the next episode of Challenge 2.0. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.